Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Recently, a, a friend contacted me who was having uh, Bible studies with a, a young person who um, had had serious doubts that there was a God, but had been studying the Bible and had seen so uh, some of the um, evidence presented that the the Bible was a historical document, and um, also the the logic behind uh, salvation and sin and the, our need for us or uh, for a saviour. But one of the um, questions that was really hanging over him because of um, a, a science background was, well, uh, are there scientific, peer-reviewed scientific papers that uh, provide evidence for creation? So uh, my friend had um, contacted several uh, scientists that he knew who were creationists and, and asked them for their thoughts on this. Of course, one of the things we need to remember when we are looking for evidence for things, say particularly for evidence for creation, and one of the things specified by the the young person that my friend was um, studying with was, well, I want some uh, peer-reviewed uh, journal articles, scientifically uh, scientific journal articles supporting creation. And uh, by this we mean that I, I guess anybody can publish um, an article. I mean, some articles could even be self-published. But the peer review system is such that when scientists uh, report uh, some of their work, their research, it, it might be a research of a new discovery, a measurement of some new uh, parameters, or it might be a study that shows, well, hang on, there was no effect of this particular drug or this particular food, or we didn't observe this particular measurement that somebody has. So, um, you know, results can be, non-results can be reported as well, because all these things contribute to the scientific literature and our scientific understanding of science. So the peer review system is that when someone writes a, a research paper and they submit it to a journal, the editor has a, a look through it, and they generally then, um, if it's reasonable, send it off to a couple of other uh, scientists who are working in that similar field to check the calculations, to go through it and, and just check that the, the claims are reasonable um, and also the conclusions that the people had, that the authors have drawn from the data, um, you know, follows logically from the results that they obtain. So this is the, the peer review system and it, it works very well. It's been very successful. It uh, helps uh, weed out uh, particularly um, people that perhaps made m mistakes. Um, it uh, gives them the opportunity to correct uh, data before it gets out into the general public. Um, and so this is one of the ways that scientists attempt to preserve scientific rigour of the results so that the conclusions that we come to in science are based on really good data and are likely to be true. And and this is very important, particularly working in areas uh, related to uh, health and medicine, 
we certainly want uh, procedures that are going to work and be safe. There are drugs that work and be safe. If someone builds a bridge uh, using, you know, new alloy, new metal alloys or new fastening systems or uh, a new uh, sort of structural design, uh, we want to assume that the person has done those calculations correctly and that it's been based on data that has been been checked and, and published in the literature. Otherwise, we, you know, we don't want to be driving on the bridge and it falls down or it blows down during a storm and crushes houses or something like that. So this is a, the whole process there. Now, one of the problems that we find in the area of creation is, of course, that the theory of evolution as a independent of God um, theory to explain the origin of life is is taught in in schools and and it's it's what is widely published and there's uh, a few years ago now I think it was probably round about two double oh seven two double oh nine that sort of vintage that the different science academies around the world published statements to the, to the effect that they now considered evolution a fact of science. And the interesting thing is that they published this and it, it was just an assertion because in actual fact they had no evidence that for a mechanism for evolution. In other words, the scientific evidence that evolution could be true had not been established by a peer review system. Now, people making claims, people are asserting this evolved into that and this sort of thing. But no one had actually seen the evolution of a new type of body part occurring and there was actually no mechanism to generate the new uh, type, new sections of DNA, the new genes and so forth to uh, produce that new organism. And, and we know these codes are very complex. So it's very interesting that these assertions are made. And so now it's very difficult to publish a peer-reviewed paper supporting creation because when it's sent out to review, the chances are that it'll be sent to someone who doesn't believe in creation and therefore will reject it. Now, a couple of times papers have been published that supported uh, or gave evidence for supporting, for example, intelligent design or um, and fine-tuning, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And sometimes some there have been cases of these papers then uh, drawing a, a, a attention being drawn to these papers by some of the other scientists who then put so much pressure on the publishers that they withdrew the, the, the paper that was published or in some cases the editor resigned. So we can see that it's, it really has become a biased system. It's, there are a couple of areas in science where you, you just don't go there, you know, the, it, it's established. And, and this really is not being honest in my, in my view. And it, it's certainly stifling the the um, conversation. And and of course, the claim is then made that you know that creationists. Well, if there was evidence for creation, you know, why isn't it all out there and published? So, for a person to ask this question, particularly someone new who's new and becoming a Christian, learning about Jesus, learning about God, the Creator, 
and um, you know, coming from a science background, university background perhaps, or even you know, through high school learning this material and being aware of it, it's a very, very reasonable question to ask. So what's the answer? And as I said, my friend actually wrote to uh, some people and there are some observations and some issues where really science hasn't come up with, with answers that are really satisfactory. And, and one is the origin of the universe. So if we, you know, we, we learn about the Big Bang Theory and this sort of thing, but the Big Bang Theory is made up of mathematical constructs, again, that haven't been proven. And they've done different sorts of experiments and measurements to try and prove the Big Bang Theory. And the more they do their um, experiments and, and look um, and say the Big Bang which uh, should predict such and such, then they go and look for such and such and, oh, hang on, it's not as it would be predicted. So there are major problems. So essentially we really don't have a model that fits the observable scientific uh, facts for the uh, a theory that fits the observable scientific facts for the origin of the universe. Another one that was raised is the fine-tuning of the universe. There seems to be evidence um, that the, the constants, um, the physical constants that govern or constrain the laws of physics and chemistry, the number of these constants, and therefore they uh, govern the behaviour of matter and energy, they seem to be tuned in such a way to permit life to exist. And then, of course, we have the origin of DNA, not only the code system itself that involves these four chemicals that we abbreviate A, C, T and G, or the fact that the, these um, compounds can uh, ac- actually represent information and encode information that makes an organism. And, this is, and of course, these codes are extremely complex. So the origin of these codes you know, cannot be explained scientifically at the present time. The, similarly, the origin of life, you know, the origin of living cells, how something can arise and be alive uh, because we again know that life is so uh, complex that... Uh, all the biochemical reactions that have to be it, with the uh, different reactants in just the right concentrations, in just the right place, and just out of equilibrium by just the right amount to produce just the right concentration of the uh, reactant for the next reaction and so forth. The complexity of the biochemistry of living systems, we, we know it's, it's absolutely impossible to arise by chance, and also for the system itself to start up from long non-living molecules. And, you know, that's why we can't resuscitate bacteria, for example. Um, So there's lots of examples there. And the irreducibility of complex systems in biology, I'll talk about that a little bit. And also the rationality of the human mind. It's quite fascinating that our brains are adjusted, that we can take in, you know, the, the photons of light that hit us and we can decode these in our brain and begin to understand the workings of the universe on the basis of observation and, of course, a little bit of touch. But largely, we can take in information that we 
are observing. And that information is coming to us simply as electromagnetic radiation in the form of light, whether it's been bounced off a plant, the leaves of a plant or the parts of an insect or a star or or whatever. When you think about all the information in nature or everything in nature comes to us in terms of light, electromagnetic energy, combination of electric and magnetic fields, is bouncing off that particular object. Some of the light is being absorbed, some is being reflected. That enters our brain. And our brain is able to take that energy, that electromagnetic field energy, and create images in our brain. So in our, our eyes are just lenses, right? They take that information in, they take it to the optic nerve. But it's our brain that constructs the picture. And so our brain can take this information and construct a picture. And the other thing is, though, we have been able, in our minds to construct and logically put together how nature works. In other words, we have been able to understand and discover the laws of physics and chemistry and so forth. So this rationality of the human mind, why our brain should be able to do that, is a a fascinating thing. Now, when we put all these things together, in my view, it's, it's overwhelming evidence for a creator, for a super intelligent, supernatural, outside our physical world system, something outside our physical world system, outside the universe, that put this system together. To me, it makes a lot of sense that there's something non-material, as we know it, outside this uh, system. Now, it's interesting, one of the replies that was uh, written was by uh, Dr. Tim Standish. Uh, Dr. Tim Standish works for the um, Geoscience Research Institute at uh, Loma Linda University there. Matter of fact, um, uh, he's a senior scientist there and he has a a PhD in the area of of biology. His reply to this was, was quite interesting. He said, What makes this question difficult is that it's rooted in a fundamental misconception of the scientific method. He points out that science cannot and does not prove anything true in the ultimate sense. Now, earlier on I mentioned that we have this peer review system because we really want to discover systems that are are true. We want to work with data that is is correct. But um, when we... Uh, look at uh, you know so many of the things like with the laws of gravity and, and so forth. We've been able to measure the gravitational constant, been able to measure it in various places over a long period of time. We've been able to put a relationship together between um, you know masses and uh, gravitational attraction and the forces between them and the resultant acceleration if one body is allowed to fall towards the other. And uh, this is based on a model, on a on a on a theory about gravity and a model, a scientific model, and that's what he points out. He goes on to say that what it does is to produce theories and models that are consistent or inconsistent with known data, and those that are most consistent are, at least in theory, accepted as the best representation of reality that we have at the moment. But all these things are subject to new data. 
and they all are constructed within the constraints of the scientist's worldview. And this is another thing too. So a lot of scientists have a worldview that God doesn't exist. So they're going to analyse the data and put together theories from that perspective that God doesn't exist. And that's a framework that they're working within. That's an assumption that they're making and they're building their theories on that assumption. A creationist, on the other hand, believes that God does exist and that God is responsible for everything that we see around us. And that's a worldview. That's a worldview I hold, for example, and Dr. Standish holds, and many other scientists hold that view as well. However, unfortunately, because of our education system and, the, the, and, and particularly the state education system, it has said, well, um, anything to do with God has got to be kept out of the science classroom. And really, this is an unrealistic demand, in my view, because we have so much evidence now pointing, hang on, there must be an external, uh, supernatural intelligence behind the universe and us and all the living systems. So we've sort of you know, hamstrung ourselves or um, you know, hobbled um, scientific discovery, in my view. Now, Dr. Stanish goes on to say, if creation occurred, that is a fact, not a theory. And this is another important thing to understand, too. While people can theorise about creation, uh, whether or not it occurred, and people can believe it or not believe it, but that doesn't alter the reality that creation, in actual fact, in my view, is a fact, and creation, in actual fact, may have occurred or did occur. And so the question is whether or not we will permit ourselves to believe that fact. So Christianity, he points out, liberates us to believe what nature screams to be true. Now, every peer-reviewed paper that reveals the incredible cooperation among and interdependence of living things, every paper that points out the fine-tuning of the universe necessary for life, Every research paper that reveals more about the remarkable information encoded in DNA points back to the fact of creation, if you have a creationist worldview. If you don't have a creationist worldview, then you're left with how can you explain these things? Because we know, again, from probability and statistics, it's not going to happen by chance. It's absolutely impossible. So... The biblical record, he, uh, Dr. Standish points out, um, records this event. So we have a, a historical um, um, record of this event as recorded by humans that passed it down. God wrote with his own finger in the fourth commandment that he did it and how long he took him to do it. But with the scientific papers, references to divine action are forbidden, as we've, that's what he points out. And this is really under a self-imposed restriction of separating theological ideas from the discipline of science. Dr. Standish writes, The problem is that this makes no difference to whether or not something is true because this is methodological naturalism and prevents precisely what this individual seems to be asking for, talking about the person that asks for scientific proof for creation. So in other words, the thing is that there's a restriction in science that specifically forbids any theological ideas or ideas related to God being 
sort of published in, uh, you know, scientific literature as, as such. And so what he's saying is that this prevents the sort of um, requirement of a peer-reviewed paper for creation uh, being published. But it's self-imposed. This is what science... And it, what it says is that creation can be true, and what we have is we have self-imposed this idea that prevents us from having the evidence that's a, that, that provides uh, you know, that that is the case. So it's a very interesting situation that scientists have put their in and put themselves in, and of course people believe, you know, that science is open and subjective and all this sort of thing. We can see in this matter it certainly isn't. But he uh, Standish points out, still there is plenty out there that has been written from a rigorous and not theological perspective on this question, and much of it is under the banner of intelligent design. And so in the intelligent design publications. We don't have long expositions of scripture, but they concentrate on what science can actually tell us. And um, he goes on to suggest the work of uh, Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Now, I have a couple of his books and um, he and, uh, and seen some of his uh, work as well. And um, he's got a, a PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. And um, you can look at some of his material if you just Google or go to the website Stephen, spelt S-T-E-P-H-E-N-C, Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, dot org, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-C-M-E-Y-E-R, dot org. So he's put up a lot of science papers and references to uh, scientific articles and so forth that um, look at this question of the evidence for intelligent design. Um, there was one um, uh, you know, quite interesting peer review paper published uh, on this topic um, in September 2020. Matter of fact, it uh, came out in the journal of Theoretical Biology, uh, Volume 501, on the 21st of September 2020. So it's quite recent, and um, it was called Using Statistical Methods to Model the Fine-Tuning of Molecular Machines and Systems. And this was um, published in the Journal of Theoretical Biology, and it's uh, quite interesting. I'll just read you the abstract. It's, uh, the abstract reads, Fine-tuning has received much attention in physics, and it states that the fundamental constants of physics are finely tuned to precise values for a rich chemistry and life permittance. It has not yet been applied in a broad manner to molecular biology. However, in this paper... We argue that biological systems present fine-tuning at different levels, e.g. functional proteins, complex biochemical machines in living cells, and cellular networks. This paper describes molecular fine-tuning, how it can be used in biology, and how it challenges conventional Darwinian thinking. 
We also discuss the statistical methods underpinning fine-tuning and present a framework for such analysis. Now, of course, this... um, It's quite interesting that in the abstract, they blatantly point out that um, this research challenges the conventional Darwinian theory. So here we have a uh, peer-reviewed journal uh, paper published in a, um, you know, quite a strong um, biological journal, the Journal of Theoretical Biology. But it's very interesting that um, a couple of referees have uh, wanted to be distanced from this. And so one set of referees, and they've published this at the front. So in other words, they've published some of the referees' concern. And so one law of referees said that large sample spaces do not imply biological systems of fine-tune. Now, their reply, of course, was published a little bit later on the 21st of December um, in... Um, Oh, that's when the volume will come out in uh, 2020. Uh, so that's uh, ahead of time. It's been released on the internet. Um, so that'll be an interesting discovery. So here we see already people are wanting to challenge this because anything that challenges Darwinian evolution, people, there's a whole group that are very, very strong to try and defend this. And then um, another one, uh, there's another uh, disclaimer um, again, that is published. Um, so again, though, if you, um, oh, if you just Google the title of that paper using, the title is Using Statistical Methods to Model the Fine-Tuning of Molecular Machines and Systems. Uh, it's by Stenar uh, Thorvalston and Ola Holstia. And um, so those, uh, the, the, those other... Um, Articles uh, again attempting to challenge it. But it's a very, very good paper, a very strong paper, again providing the argument that there is evidence, powerful evidence for intelligent design and hence a creator. Another uh, one that is um, useful uh, to look at or work, a number of papers published by James M. Tour. And um, he, he gave a talk at uh, Andrews University on the 11th of September 2020. So again, these are, are recent um, references that we're putting up here. And the title of his talk was Scientists Are Clueless on the Origin of Life. Now, James M. Tour is one of the most highly cited chemists in the world. He works on building molecular machines. He works in that space. This is his area of world expertise. And he gave a talk there. So again, it was at um, Andrews University in the United States. So again, if you Google James M. Tour, scientists are clueless on the origin of life, you can see his talk and a number of other papers there. So this um, really... um, you know, scientists work, you know, and spend a lot of time falsifying theories. And we need to recognise that the theory of evolution really has, has really no legs to stand on, so to speak, now. More and more evidence is coming out all the time. And while we um, they don't have papers, scientific papers, you know, directly sort of pointing to creation, 
the or directly, you know, verifying creation. Exactly. What we have is a whole lot, though, a growing number of scientific papers that are pointing out the fact that in there must have been a supernatural origin to things like the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of the DNA code, the beginning of life, um, the structures in biology and so forth, and the rationality of the human mind. You've been listening to Faith and Science. If you want to re-listen to these programs, remember you can Google uh, 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 